Well, several months ago, Ryan asked if I could preach in September. He and Sarah have been in Amsterdam since Wednesday. By the time you wake up tomorrow morning, Ryan will have, Lord willing, successfully defended his doctoral dissertation. So if you can think to pray for him tonight before you go to sleep, I'm sure he'd be thankful. Anyway, he asked me to preach, and I, of course, said, you bet, I'd love to. He said, great, you've got 2 Samuel 3 and 4. I said, okay, let's see what I got here. Okay, uh... I'm pretty sure Ryan planned his preaching schedule right around 2 Samuel 3 and 4 and put this Europe trip right there. Uh, I'll just go ahead and let the youth minister take these. Uh, But I've been reminding myself of something that I often tell the youth, and that is that our God does not waste words. There's a reason that we stood out of reverence for 2 Samuel 3 and 4. We learn about God, we learn about the kingdom, we learn of ourselves, we learn of Christ from these chapters just as much as we do in Mark 15 and 16 or Romans 8. In fact, if God does not waste words, then we can be confident that there are things to be learned in these two chapters that we would miss out on altogether otherwise. This is one reason why we preach through entire books here at Desert Springs. A good thing to consider when reflecting on a book, um, a chapter at a time, or the whole thing, is to think about what God is uniquely revealing about himself in that book that he doesn't in the other 65. So these are important chapters. They've been good for my soul this week, where I initially thought they might not, uh, just after staring at it and praying through it for many hours. So I pray that uh, these two chapters would be good for your soul this morning as well. We'll look at three points of emphasis this morning. The transfer of the kingdom in the first half of chapter 3, violence in the kingdom in the second half of chapter 3 and throughout chapter 4, and then a retroactive look back through both chapters of the king of the kingdom. So there's lots to get to this morning, so let's get right to it. The transfer of the kingdom. The narrator lets us know right away what the focus will be of the following two chapters in his first verse. He says in verse 1, "...there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David." And David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. This verse is kind of a mountaintop view, which looks both forward and backward. Forward looking and that it's a good summary verse for these two chapters. That's why I titled the sermon right from this verse. David grew stronger and stronger. But it's also looking back as well. We might say that this is a good summary verse for the entire second half of 1 Samuel. While we wouldn't call it a war in the traditional sense of two large armies and going out to battle, uh, these two houses, David's house and Saul's house, have been in conflict for a long, long time. And if you can recall, way back to June of last year, when Ryan got us through the first two chapters of 2 Samuel, where David is anointed and crowned king over the southern tribe of Judah, there was actually a prolonged conflict in these first two chapters with David and the remaining house of Saul, even after Saul's death. So if you can remember chapter 2, the chapter just prior to what we've just read, there were lots of people dying in this battle. So 12 warriors from each army, from David's army and from Saul's army, are picked to representatively fight on behalf of the armies. Whichever 12 wins, the, this little skirmish wins the war. Only all 24 of them die. Uh, It seems that God gave a pretty clear answer for if he desires for his people to be in conflict with each other. So after this conflict, one of David's mighty men, Asahel, chases Saul's cousin and top general, Abner, across many, many miles 
Abner continually is looking behind him, yelling at Asahel to let it go, man. Like, we can do this another day. It doesn't have to happen right now. Uh, Finally, after Asahel will not relent, Abner turns and in self-defense stabs him through the stomach with a spear. All of this is included in what we just read in chapter 3, verse 1. While David has been ruling in the city of Hebron and Judah for seven years or so, there doesn't seem to be any end of this conflict in sight. And there certainly doesn't seem to be much chance of David ruling over all of Israel, the remaining tribes, which are still loyal to Saul's son, Ishbosheth, until we get a dramatic and unexpected turn in the narrative in verse 6 of chapter 3 and following. While there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. Abner is making himself strong in Saul's house. Now, Abner had always been really influential in Saul's ear. Uh, And now it appears that he's more than just a a, a trusted general or advisor for Ishbosheth. It seems that Abner is pretty content to not... He's okay not having the title of king, as long as everyone kind of recognizes that he's the one that's kind of doing the, the ruling here. He's take, his taking of Saul's concubine is to put himself in the position of Saul. What Saul left is really mine, he seems to be saying quite publicly to Israel. Absalom will do the exact same thing in public defiance of his father David later on in the story. So this is a pretty brash and defiant move on Abner's part. But he evidently thought that Ishbosheth either wouldn't mind because he recognizes Abner as the real, though not formally recognized, king of Israel, or that he'd be too weak to do anything. Abner sees him as a pretty timid weakling, which we'll see he actually is. So he takes Saul's concubine, and then Ishbosheth then comes to Abner all like, Hey, Man, hey, why, man, why? And Ishbosheth is apparently supposed to just keep his mouth shut when Abner did this, just let Uncle Ab do whatever he wanted to because Abner blows up. Verse 8 Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head of Judah, of that tribe of David? To this day, I keep showing steadfast love to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and have not given you into the hand of David, and yet you charge me today with a fault concerning a woman. God, do so to Abner, and more also, if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and to set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah, from Dan to Beersheba. There's a lot going on here. In his understanding... The only reason that Ishbosheth is still even in a position of somewhat influence over Israel is because Abner has allowed it. He hasn't given him into the hand of David. The implication being, I could have given you into David's hand a long time ago, but I didn't. You're supposed to keep your mouth shut and let me do whatever I wanted. Now, whether this is true or not, if he actually could have done that, We'll continue to see in a minute, Abner has quite the opinion of himself and his influence over geopolitical events. But then in his anger against the weakling son of Saul, Abner makes a vow to Ishbosheth. Basically, would God destroy me if I do not give David the kingdom as God promised to him over all 12 tribes from Dan to Beersheba? 
Now, what he just said is astounding on a number of levels. First of all is the fact that he knows about God's promise to give the kingdom to David. Abner has been around in this story for a long time. In fact, it was he that Saul asked in 1 Samuel 17, uh, hey, whose son is that that just killed Goliath? Saul sends Abner to go find him. And he comes back to Saul and said, I found out he's, he's Jesse's son. Abner was undoubtedly with Saul when he, Saul, became afraid of David because he saw that the, that the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. He was certainly there as Saul's uh, most trusted general and advisor when Samuel said to Saul, the Lord has turn, torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And if he was too dense to understand that that neighbor was actually David, he heard Saul himself say to David, And now, behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. So Abner knows all of this, and is still, just for many years, completely cool with prolonging Ishbosheth's sham kingdom. It's only when Abner's personal and individual pride is insulted that he's ready to acknowledge God's promises to David. Now before we shake our heads and wag our fingers at stupid, stupid Abner, how often do each of us, each day, or each day do we know and hear of Jesus' kingdom and his kingship over our lives and go about trying to selfishly prolong our own kingdoms? We hear of God's promises, and we ignore them because they've become inconvenient in our lives. Of Romans 14, 12, that each of us will give an account of all that we do for all of our lives to God. We put our fingers in our ears and say, ah, whatever I do doesn't really matter, right? Or of 2 Peter 3, in, in light of the imminent and full kingdom of Christ, we ought to live our lives in holiness, in light of that holy kingdom, our coming kingdom fingers in the ears. Yeah, but my kingdom's kind of fun. Surely, Jesus, Jesus isn't going to come in my lifetime, so what I do really isn't that significant. As we'll see, we are in the same position as Abner. We are just as sinful, and we are in just as much need of grace as the characters throughout this story. But then check out Abner's pride in verse 9. He says, if I do not accomplish for David... The sheer hubris of this man is incredible. He's basically saying, yeah, if God wants to keep these promises to David, it's because I'm going to let him. I'll do it for God, or at least give him my stamp of approval. And Ishbosheth seems to agree with him because, verse 11, Ishbosheth could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. Ishbosheth can see what's coming. If Abner's turned on him, then it's over. He seems to to think. He silently and cowardly resigns himself to his fate. So in verse 12, we read, Abner sent messengers to David on his behalf, saying, to whom does the land belong? Essentially, the implication being, David, whose land does Israel belong to? Everyone knows I, I own the land. I have this land, so David, make your covenant with me. And behold, my hand shall be with you to bring over all Israel to you. It would behoove you, young David, uh, to do what I say and allow me to let you give, or to allow me to give you Israel. And to his humble credit, 
and not a puffed up defiance to Abner. David says, all right, it sounds like a deal. On one condition, my first wife, Michal, the daughter of Saul, I will make a covenant with you if she's returned to me since her father ripped her away from me way back in 1 Samuel. There's probably some political motivation there to be remarried to the house of Saul. But it's also very likely that David really loved her and wanted his wife returned to him. The way that she and David are described together in 1 Samuel is pretty romantic. We'll see this change in a couple of weeks with Michal, though. But for now, I think David wants to be with his wife. So Abner says, okay, sounds good, David. Hey, Ishbosheth, he sends some messengers back to Ishbosheth. Hey, send David your sister. And then remarkably, uh, sniveling Ishbosheth says, okay. And the king of Israel now is obeying this regional king of Judah. Okay, I'll do whatever you want, David. This is big things happening right here. The transfer of the kingdom is happening. So after this, Abner, ever seeing himself as kingmaker, seeks to do just that. He meets with the elders of all the tribes of Israel to get them to endorse and set David as king over all of Israel. It's almost as as if William Wallace came to Abner and said, unite the clans, unite them, right? And, And that's exactly the way it is. There's nothing but a whole bunch of division and distrust amongst the people of God. They need a king to be set over them to kill that division and hostility, making one new man in place of the two or the the twelve. Now, Abner certainly doesn't have purity in all of his motives. But nevertheless, God is using what Abner intended for good, his own selfishness and his own uh, advancement in his kingdom and using it for good. More on that in a moment. But here's Abner. The man who alongside Saul has hunted David for nearly all of David's adult life. He set up a rival kingdom in opposition to David for almost a decade. So what will David's response be to his old, old nemesis? We find out in verse 20. When Abner came with 20 men to David at Hebron, David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. A feast. A prodigal son feast. Many commentators think that David is just being a shrewd politician here. He's ingratiating himself to Abner to ensure his ongoing support and the deliverance of Israel. And while there might be some of that, we'll continue to see this morning and over the next several weeks of David's love for Saul's house, of his trust in God's promises and God's timing of the kingdom, and his grace toward his enemies. So after this feast... David sends Abner away, and he, in verse 21, went away in peace. We just can't help but from thinking of David's greater son, Jesus, who acts much in the same way of so many New Testament explanations of our current situation, explanations of ourselves, like Colossians 1, and you, like Abner, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. All of us are born enemies of God and our lives prove it. Doing each day whatever we want, whenever we want to. 
ignoring the promises of God when they become inconvenient. But the good news of the gospel is that we don't have to remain at odds with God and only live for ourselves. Jesus died an enemy's death for his enemies so that they might become his friends. They might live. And Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5 that he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. We are now, through Christ, not only able to be at peace with the king and become his friend and be his cause for celebration, but to now finally live for something other than ourselves, to live for his kingdom. So the question becomes, as we read and examine and try to understand Abner's life, is to think and reflect of whose kingdom you're living in and for. Even with mixed motives, are you, by trusting in the life and death and resurrection of Christ, a friend of the king? And if you are living in the kingdom and are made right before him, you are his friend, are you living more and more, not for yourself, but for he who died and was raised for you? I recently read a great little prayer that we should all pray throughout our days. Is, Father, help me to want what you want. Amen should be continuously on our lips and in our minds. I think it's great. Not what I want, but what you want. Not my will, but yours. And the more we trust and love him, what we want will actually be what he wants. We have no idea of Abner's full and likely mixed motives here, whether he was just treating David as a pawn for his own benefit as he was with Ishbosheth, if he just saw the writing on the wall that Ishbosheth wasn't taking this thing anywhere, and David was really growing stronger, and he just wanted to be on the right side of history or something. Or if he would actually begin to wholeheartedly live for the advancement of David's kingdom. Unfortunately, we never find out. And the rest of chapters 3 and 4 are full of violence in the kingdom. David's top general, Joab, was the brother of Asahel, who Abner killed in chapter 2 years prior, with the spear through the stomach. While David is throwing this feast for Abner, perhaps conveniently, David has Joab and his men out fighting. And if the scene that we just left with, was David and Michal standing at the front door of the castle, smiling and waving as Abner and his boys ride away, the music then takes an ominous turn as the camera swings around 180 degrees, and the dark clouds behind Joab and his men as they approach from behind. We'll pick it up in verse 23. When Joab and all the army that was with him came, it was told Joab, Abner the son of Ner came to the king and he has let him go and he has gone in peace. Then Joab went to the king and said, what have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. Why is it that you have sent him away so that he is gone? You know that Abner, the son of Ner, came to deceive you and to know you're going out and you're coming in and to know all that you are doing. The same arrogance that we saw from top general Abner against King Ishbosheth is now being exhibited here by top general Joab against King David. What have you done? 
is the same language that Samuel used with Saul when he found him making sacrifices. Joab is saying, you idiot. What could you possibly have been thinking? The implication behind this accusation that Abner is just like sneaking in to spy out David's court is that only a great fool would be so blind to not see that. Fool, idiot, King David, Abner is accusing his king of. The narrator doesn't include David's response, so the emphasis really is on Joab. The contrast between a former enemy who is now considered David's friend and David's most trusted friend who is now becoming his enemy. Perhaps my mentioning of the prodigal son isn't too far off here either. Joab, the the faithful older brother who has served the king long and hard, He's worked so hard for the king, he can't imagine a scenario in which this enemy deserves grace. Like the older brother and the Pharisees to whom Jesus told that parable, Joab has an extremely low understanding of his own sinfulness and his own need of grace. And he has an extremely high and inflated view and understanding of his own merit and work for the kingdom. In the next several verses, without David's knowledge, Joab sends out messengers to catch up with Abner and tells him to return to Hebron, presumably at at David's bidding. Joab meets Abner, and probably under the ruse of, hey, hey, Joab, let's bury the hatchet, uh, or hey, Abner, let's bury the hatchet now that you're friends with David. He, He comes up, he's like, hey, buddy, and then stabs him in the stomach. Cold blooded murder just as Abner had killed his brother through the stomach. Vengeance is mine, says Joab, certainly not God's. Needless to say, Joab did not wake up that morning praying to God, help me to want what the king wants. He was rather preaching to himself, I don't care what the king wants, I want what I want, and I want it now. Perhaps a prayer that you've prayed several times in the last day or two, perhaps many times this morning. When David hears of it, he is enraged and calls down curses on Joab's house for this cold-blooded revenge. He calls for an official state funeral for Abner and an official time of mourning, which had to have infuriated Joab. But in publicly lamenting Abner's death, David says that Abner fell at the hands of the wicked. He has publicly proclaimed Joab, his top general, to be the wicked. David and the narrator are going out of their way to show the king's innocence and the transfer of the kingdom out of Saul's house and into David's. And this theme will continue into the next chapter, chapter 4, verse 1, when Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed, and all Israel was dismayed. His courage failed is Literally, he lost his grip. He's, he's beginning to crack up and just be completely fearful. When, while Abner had betrayed him, Ishbosheth seemed to think that if Abner was alive, he was still standing in between he and David. But with Abner out of, the, out of the picture, he thinks that David will soon be coming for him and his kingdom. And apparently, there were others who thought David would be making these plans also. Two brothers, Rechab and Baanah, sneak into Ishbosheth's bedroom while he's taking a nap. 
stab him in the stomach, and cut his head off. And the most surprising part is that they do this because they think that this is what David and God would want. Second half of verse 7, they took his head and went by the way of the Arabah all night and brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And they said to the king, Hey, here's the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my Lord, the king this day, on Saul and all his offspring. Aren't you proud of us? We did it for you. The Lord was working through us, they claim. Yeah, maybe we did. It wasn't the most holy thing that could have been done, but it was a necessary evil for the kingdom. They're actually acting very similar to the Amalekite who lied to David, saying that it was he who had killed Saul, Ishbosheth's father, thinking that David would be somehow super thankful for him for finally removing his long rival. So either these two brothers were completely oblivious to that story, they didn't know about that Amalekite, or it had been so long that they had forgotten in their complete stupidity. Uh, David responds in the same way that he did with the Amalekite. If I executed the Amalekite for murdering the anointed king of Israel, what makes you think that I wouldn't execute you clowns for thinking that killing a righteous man in his own bed would be something that I wanted? He's, he's incredulous. We can't tell if he's like super emotionally angry or just like incredulous. What are you doing? Get him out of here. And they're taken outside and executed. Their hands and feet cut off and hung out for all to see. It seems that Hannah's song from 1 Samuel 2 of the wicked being cut off is certainly and literally happening through the kingship of David. But if their lives ended in disgrace in verse 12, David takes the head of Ishbosheth and buries it with great honor alongside Abner. Chapter 4 is the closing of the book on Saul's house. We even get verse 4, which is seemingly out of place. If you're just reading through chapter 4, verse 4 seems to come out of nowhere and then it just goes right back to the narrative. We read Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. This is a flashback. He was five years old, this son, when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, that Saul and Jonathan had died. And his nurse took him up, this son, and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. This won't be the last time we'll see Mephibosheth. But this little inclusion here, this one little one-verse flashback, is showing that Mephibosheth, Jonathan's son and grandson of Saul, a likely and right heir to the kingdom, is not a suitable replacement or succeeder of the throne. In these days, a lame man would not be a legitimate king. So this inclusion is put here to show that there are now no legitimate heirs. Saul's house is finished and done. Mephibosheth can't take the throne. Ishbosheth is dead. It's over. The transfer of the kingdom from Saul to David is now complete, and we will see it culminate next week in chapter 5. Which brings us to our final point of the king of the kingdom. As we've seen throughout these two chapters, and really all of David's life, he waited on the Lord. No one would probably thought much of it if David had just gone ahead and killed Saul 
in the cave way back when. This crazy king keeps chasing you down, and we kind of all heard the story about you being the one who's actually going to take the throne. So, yeah, it was kind of weird. You killed him while he was sleeping in the cave, but uh, that's all right. No one would have thought much of it had David mustered an army and taken out Ishbosheth and Abner. Abner, like all of Israel, undoubtedly knew of God's promises to David of the kingdom. Was there sin and evil committed by men that would ultimately bring about the full deliverance of the kingdom to David? You bet. There's, there's murder here that we've just read about. There's beheadings. But while all of these men were culpable for their own actions as men with free will, we can see God's providential sovereignty behind the scenes and turning evil for good and giving the, the full kingdom to his king. Many centuries later, David's greater son would wait patiently upon the Lord and trust in his promises. Satan promised Jesus the kingdom in the wilderness, just like David had the opportunity to, if he would just take it. And yet Jesus remained blameless and righteous. He went through years of trial and hardship, but in the end, God was faithful to his anointed king. Was there sin and evil committed by men who would ultimately bring about the full deliverance of the kingdom to Jesus? You bet. There's betrayal. There's illegal, law-breaking, sham trials in the middle of the night. There's false accusations. There's cowardice. The actual torture and murder of the king. But while all of these men were culpable for their own actions, as men with free will, we can see God, God's providential sovereignty behind the scenes and turning evil for good and giving the full deliverance of the kingdom to his king. All of this is important to remember as we keep reading and interpreting First and Second Samuel, and that is that we are not David in this story. The moral of the story of David and Goliath is not for you just to Buck up and go slay the giants in your life. The moral of that story is that we need a representative warrior to step in front of God's terrified people and to defeat their enemy on their behalf. And the moral of 2 Samuel 3 and 4 is not that if we just keep our heads down and remain blameless, God will deliver to us wealth and a so-called kingdom. No. 2 Samuel 3 and 4 is that God will faithfully keep his promises to his anointed king, and he will. We are indeed in this story. The tendency is to always look to the hero of putting ourselves into David's shoes. But if we're honest, we much more resemble Ishbosheth's cowardice and timidity. We more resemble Abner's arrogance and manipulation of Joab's defiance and vengefulness of Rechab and Ba'ana's justification of their own sin. So while David and his kingdom show us many ways in which the coming kingdom of Christ will be similar, there are also many ways in which David is unlike his greater son. The reason that a greater son of David is needed in the first place is because this one has some problems. While there's nothing but righteousness, blamelessness, and grace from David in these two chapters, the narrator also gives us a small hint of David's coming failures. We skipped over it, but let's go back to the beginning of chapter 3, verse 1. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, and David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. And sons were born to David at Hebron. 
His firstborn was Amnon of Ahinoam of Jezreel, and his second Kiliab of Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel, and the third Absalom, the son of Maacah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur, and the fourth Adonijah, the son of Haggith, and the fifth Shephatiah, the son of Abital, and the sixth Ephraim of Eglah, David's wife. These were born to David in Hebron. Now, I think there's something going on here of David's house growing stronger and stronger. He's multiplying numerically. And the just the facts, ma'am, almost newspaper recording of events here seems to indicate that the narrator doesn't really care that David's house is growing stronger by means of polygamy. In fact, many Bible critics will point to this, this and other places in the Old Testament narrative of actually uh, promoting polygamy. But this couldn't be any further from the truth. I recently read one pastor who said, saying that First and Second Samuel doesn't condemn polygamy is like saying the Selma movie doesn't condemn racism. Most stories show, not tell. And that's exactly what's going on here. Last week, Ryan traced the theme of the king throughout the Bible. And one place he showed us was Deuteronomy 17, where there wasn't a king at the time, but God gave in his law uh, expectations for if and when there was a king over Israel. And one explicit prohibition for the king is that Deuteronomy 17, 17, he shall not acquire many wives for himself. For any reader of 2 Samuel who knows God's law, what we just read in chapter 3 should be setting off warning sirens in our heads. Whoa, I, th I thought David was righteous. To this point, he nearly always has been. I thought he was a man after God's own heart. Well, he is in many ways. But he also has some pretty significant blind spots some place of sinful indifference that will ultimately bring a royal mess to his life and to his house. For those readers who knew the coming story of 2 Samuel, the very names of David's children who are listed here should make the hair on the back of your neck stand up. Amnon, Absalom. These young boys will one day be the harvest of David's sowing of indifference. So while in the majority of this story, we place ourselves in the sandals of the others, like Joab and Abner, those who must recognize the faithfulness of God and his promise to his anointed king, how we must, like them, repent and place ourselves under his good kingship, these few introductory verses are a place where we actually can see ourselves in David. The question then becomes, like David, looked around at these unbelieving cultures around him and said, polygamy's fine. Where have we become or begun to indifferently act like the culture around us? The unbelieving culture around us that says, hey, it's totally fine to, to watch that, to binge watch that series on Netflix. It's cool. It's just the world, man. It's okay. Or it's totally fine to listen to that. Or it's totally fine to wear that or dress in that way. I know that 10 years ago, that would have been totally, ah, but you know what? Things change. 
It's totally fine to speak like that. It's totally, totally cool, the world says, to spend your money on those things, to act in that way with someone who isn't your husband or your wife. Now, not many of us are trying to justify polygamy these days, I think, uh, but how many of us, even those of us who genuinely love God and seek to honor him as David, have become so, so culturally blinded that we actually begin to look more like the world around us than our king. Like frogs in a slowly warming pot, our consciences are slowly but surely evaporating. None of us likely will have kids from our fourth or fifth wife who will one day seek to destroy us, but we all have areas of sin in our life that will seek to destroy us. Ryan is defending his dissertation tomorrow on the Puritan John Owen. Perhaps Owen's most famous quote is, Be killing sin or it will be killing you. It was true for David and it's no less true for us. So perhaps it might be good for all of us to ask a trusted friend or a couple of friends in a community group if they've observed anything in our lives that we seem to be unaware of, that we just are marching in the way of the culture around us that we don't see in ourselves, a blind spot, ways in which we really are more closely conforming to the world rather than to Christ, ways in which that we don't see that are actually dangerous trajectories which might lead to destruction. We need help. We need, we don't, our hearts are deceitful and we don't see things well. We need help from others. First requires humility to ask for help. While all of this is true, however, that we need to be in daily and diligent uh, putting to death of our sin in our lives, we must not leave, leave 2 Samuel 3 and 4 with just a commitment to fight sin more, more diligently or just to make a bunch of resolutions. Like Abner, Joab, and David, we are in need of a king who will live for us who will die for us, who will be raised to new life for us. And as we close chapters 3 and 4 and look forward to David's ascension to the throne in Jerusalem in chapter 5, we must look to that glorious and coming king. Robert Murray McShane said a couple hundred years ago, for every look at self, take ten looks to Christ. That's how we change that's how we begin to love him, by beholding him, by his glory, like an eclipse, drowning out and crowding out anything behind it. So I pray that would be true for us this week. That we look to our sin, yes, but for every time we do that, we take ten looks to Christ. That's how we begin to live for him, for his kingdom more than our own. So let's look to him now in prayer and ask for a clearer vision of him this week. Our Father, we do confess, and if we're honest with ourselves, we do look more like Abner, like Joab, like Ishbosheth, like Rechab and Baana. Father, we are petty, we are self promoting. We want what we want. Father, I pray that through these two chapters of seeing your anointed king, 
that we might have a clearer picture and understanding of David's greater and coming son, Jesus. That he is king. He is seated now on his throne at your right hand and will remain there reigning over our lives and over the cosmos until he stands up and returns to take his people. Father, we pray that we might trust that. We might not only believe it on a theological exam that Jesus is coming back, but we might actually expect and longingly hope for his return. We wouldn't just put our fingers in our ears and act like it's not happening. We might live for his kingdom more and more because we are his friends, because he has lived for us and died for us. We might pray that we might trust that all the more this week. We pray that we might see him clearly this week, that you might conform us more to the image of him rather than to the image of the world around us. We pray for these things for the sake of his kingdom and in his name. Amen.